Chapter Twenty Five of The Bridge of History Over the Gulf of Time, a popular view of the historical evidence for the truth of Christianity, by Thomas Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett W. Downey. Chapter Twenty Five The Concluding Evidences. We have now brought out this circumstantial evidence for the authenticity, genuineness, and authorship of the four Gospels, for the historical identity and real human existence of their authors, and above all, for the competence of the evangelists to write the Gospels that bear their names. I have not performed my task as it might be performed, with more time and more research, but my own conscientious conviction is that Strauss has not an inch of ground to stand upon, when he denies that we know who wrote the Gospels, when they were written, and where they were written. His mythical system, which held me in bondage for twelve years, I feel has utterly lost its hold upon me, and I say it thankfully. I do not forget, however, that I evoked the presence of that intelligent and candid skeptic, and let us suppose, if you please, that he is still present. Yes, sir, he will be saying, I am here, but you have not changed my convictions. I give you credit for your own belief that all is in favor of your conclusions, but I have no such belief. I tell you again that I do not believe in miracles, and so I hold that the gospel miracles were never performed, and that your gospel history is no history at all. You may believe, and I do not doubt that you honestly believe, the gospels were written by the identical persons you think you have pointed out, and that they were written when and where you think you have succeeded in shewing they were written. On the contrary, I hold that the theory of Strauss is not only a very probable theory, but that it is a most veritable theory, that it is the true way of accounting for the existence of these four ancient pieces of writing called the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I am not disposed to deny that these books were in existence in the middle of the latter half of the second century, that is to say, in the year 175. I do not question for one moment that which is granted by Strauss and all the existing school of free thinkers, and by Bolingbroke, and the candid and scholarly free thinkers of the last century. But then, as Strauss shrewdly observes, a hundred and forty two years, from AD thirty three to AD one seventy five, is ample time for the formation of these legendary books. I make no doubt that some four persons who were companions or associates of the companions of this extraordinary and highly gifted enthusiast, Jesus of Nazareth, began to write these books, wrote some part of them, some comparatively short part, and that by the natural tendency of mankind in the state of ignorance, which is, universally, a state of childish wonder and superstition, the belief in the marvelous gradually expanded in the minds of the very early Christians, and accounts of miracles were not only framed and credited, but added in writing to the first sketches of Gospels. Other and still more marvelous stories would be added to these, and so, by successive accretions of marvels, these four Gospels, as they are called, came to be what we see they are now, in the course of those 142 years, or by the year 175. And I further hold, continues our skeptical friend, that it is just as Strauss says, you may see the growth of the mythical element in these books, if you will read them with the critical faculty, and not with a blind and unexamining credence. When Jesus is related to have raised the dead in the two earlier Gospels, it is a very unimportant and unimpressive affair. 
he enters a room where a maiden has just deceased and restores her to life the mythical element grows in the third gospel the widow's son of nain is raised to life upon the very bier on which he had lain dead and was being carried a corpse to the grave but what a startling increase of the legendary spirit there is when we come to the fourth and last of these remarkable ancient books your john as you call him gives us the account of the resurrection of lazarus a man who had not only been dead some time before he was interned but who had been four days in the grave and whose body by his own sister's account was now in a state of decomposition doubtless that story is one of very late formation it could only have found belief among very ignorant and credulous people or among people who have given themselves up so thoroughly to the reception of marvellous tales that they could almost believe anything i should think it very probable that it is one of the latest accretions of the marvellous to these ancient books i don't at all think it unlikely that it was added to them very nearly as late as the very year one seventy five that has been mentioned now let us inquire into the possibility of what our sceptical friend advances as being true namely that the account of the resurrection of lazarus in the gospel of st john is merely a marvellous tale which was added to that gospel about or nearly as late as the year one seventy five at first please bear it in mind that this is no question about printed books printed books what in a d one seventy five you know there was no printed books till more than a thousand years after that date please also bear it in mind that there was no collected new testament at that time it is not till years after that date we learn that there was a collected new testament in use among the christian churches in the year one seventy five the gospels formed a volume a written volume by themselves the epistles of st paul also formed a written volume by themselves the other books of the new testament were still loose in the form of tracts and they were not gathered into a third volume now how many copies of the one volume which contained the four gospels might there be in existence in the year one seventy five stop sir says one there is a previous question namely what was the price of written books you know since the majority of professing christians must be thought of as poor they could not have had many books among them if books were dear at that period of the world's history let me entreat you to disabuse your minds of that belief if you have believed that books were dear in the second century they were dear in the tenth century when scarcely anybody could write and read they were dear in the ninth eighth seventh and sixth centuries they were not cheap in the fifth but books were really cheap in the second century thousands wrote books for a living since there were many readers in the highly civilized period of the reigns of the good emperors as they were called now how many copies of the written volume containing the four gospels may we fairly suppose there were in existence in the year one seventy five you remember gibbon reckoned there were six millions of professing christians in existence about the time that constantine began to patronize christianity the year three thirteen well if there were six millions in three thirteen there would not be more than three millions one would think in one seventy five now among how many professing christians shall we allot one copy of this volume andrews norton an american scholar and critic of eminence thinks we should allot one copy to every fifty and he thinks that a fair supposition especially when we take into account the zeal of the ancient christians and the high value they placed upon the gospels perhaps some one among my audience may say it is not likely that one copy would be found among every fifty better suppose one copy among every one hundred oh 
but I would be more liberal still, and would say, let us allot one written copy of the volume containing the four Gospels among every two hundred professing Christians. Now, divide your three millions by two hundred, and what is the result? Fifteen thousand. Fifteen thousand copies, written copies of the volume containing the four Greek Gospels in existence in the year 175. Now comes the decisive question. How to get a false story, so long as the account of the resurrection of Lazarus, into 15,000 written copies of the volume containing the four Gospels in the year 175? You know, if any of you possessed a scarce printed book, a book which had been long out of print, and you were to say, I should like to have this book put into print again, and to have a story that I have written put into it, and printed as if it had been an original part of the book. I can afford it, and I will have it done. And suppose you gave all into a printer's hands, and ordered one hundred thousand copies of the book to be struck off. Well, that would spread the story as widely as the original book itself, and at once. But, consider now, supposing some person living at Antioch, or Ephesus, invented the account of the resurrection of Lazarus, and wrote it down in his own copy of the volume containing the four Gospels. That would not write it down in the volume possessed by any Christian living in Jerusalem, or in Rome, or at Corinth, or at Philippi, or at Thessalonica, or in any place where there was a Christian church. The man who invented the story could not get it written down in the copy possessed by his next-door neighbor, if his neighbor did possess a copy, without obtaining that neighbor's leave. How, then, to get the leave of fifteen thousand persons scattered over France, Italy, Greece, the isles of the archipelago, Asia Minor, the Holy Land, Egypt, and northern Africa? Fifteen thousand professing Christians, for none else dared possess the Gospels, carrying their lives in their hands and exposed to death. How, I say, to get the leave of fifteen thousand zealous believers in what they held to be divine truth, to write down a false and unauthorized story in their copies of the Gospels. The very supposition is absurd, preposterously absurd. Well, I must confess, says our skeptical friend, that I overshot the bolt in supposing the feat I described could be accomplished so late as A.D. 175. Yes, yes, it was an extreme, too extreme a supposition, I grant that. But, sir, it could be accomplished, and doubtless was accomplished at some time earlier than that. You say the Gospel of St. John was originally published about A.D. 98? Well, sir, from 98 to 175 is 77 years. During such a period of time as that, some time during the 77 years, I say there must have been ample opportunity for inserting the imaginary story of the resurrection of Lazarus in the fourth Gospel, and successfully passing it off as a really original and authentic and genuine part of that Gospel. No doubt of it. Now let us see if there be any likelihood of truth in this amended position, as he deems it, of our skeptical friend. Who among the fathers, did we say, were living in the last quarter of the second century? You may remember that we named as preeminent Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Clement of Alexandria. Of the three, let us take Irenaeus. He was martyred at Vienne in France, where he was one of the early bishops of Lyon. About the year 175, the best critical scholars agree, Irenaeus wrote his book against heretics. That book has come down to us. Listen to a few extracts from this book, I pray you. Matthew, among the Hebrews, published a gospel in their own language, while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel at Rome, and founding a church there. And after their departure, death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself, 
delivered to us in writing what Peter had preached, and Luke, the companion of Paul, recorded the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned upon his breast, likewise published a gospel while he dwelt at Ephesus in Asia. Then he gives some fanciful reasons why there should be only four gospels, such as there are four quarters of the world, four cardinal winds, and etc., but all that was according to the fanciful taste of the time. I don't know but that our time is quite as fanciful, only our fancies are of another kind. Listen, I pray, to the remaining extracts. The gospel, according to John, declares his, Christ's, princely, complete, and glorious generation from the Father, saying, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. The gospel, according to Luke, being of a priestly character, begins with Zacharias the priest offering incense to God. Matthew proclaims his human generation, saying, The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark begins with the prophetic spirit, which came down from above to men, saying, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. If you have listened to the extracts I have just read from Arrhenius, you will not wonder that our skeptical Lord Bolingbroke, in his time, together with Strauss and all skeptics who are scholars in our time, avow their belief that our four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were in existence and were received by the Christian Church as early as the year 175. But what more about Arrhenius? He tells us that he learnt his Christianity from the venerable Polycarp, who was Bishop of Smyrna, the blessed Polycarp, Irenaeus calls him, and he declares he had such a regard for his instructor, who was afterwards a martyr for Christ when he was ninety years old, that he can still mentally see and hear him, his walks, the complexion of his life, and the form of his body, and his conversations with the people, and his familiar intercourse with John, as he was accustomed to tell, as also his familiarity with those that had seen the Lord. Irenaeus gives us more accounts of Polycarp and his familiar intercourse with the beloved disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast at supper. But let these suffice. Now, when was the alleged interpolation made in the Gospel of St. John? In the lifetime of that apostle himself? That apostle from whom Polycarp learned so much about Christ? That apostle whose prolonged life was so marked by increased attachment to his Lord? I say, was the alleged interpolation made in John's own lifetime? Who can, for one moment, imagine that it was? What would the interpolator expect the beloved disciple to say about it? Resurrection of Lazarus, he would have exclaimed. Where did you get such a story? Here is the gospel that God has inspired me to write. His Holy Spirit has brought to my mind the very words of my Savior at that sweet supper. But you will find no story about any resurrection of Lazarus in it. Who has dared to forge such a tale? There never was any resurrection of Lazarus or I should have known of it. I was with my master in Jerusalem. I was with him in Galilee. I was with him on the lake of Genesaret. I was with him in the Mount of Transfiguration. I was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. I stood by his cross and received the care of his dear mother from him ere he died. And I tell you, there never was any resurrection of Lazarus. You must not have a false story like that in your books. Away with it. We feel sure that no interpolator could have succeeded in getting a false account of the resurrection of Lazarus into St. John's Gospel during St. John's lifetime, and securing its reception by the Christian Church. 
then since the amended supposition of our skeptical friend is that the interpolation could certainly be successfully made somewhere between the years ninety eight and one seventy five could it possibly have been made in the lifetime of polycarp but what would the interpolator have felt sure that polycarp would have said about it for he could scarcely expect that polycarp the bishop of smyrna one of the seven churches mentioned in the apocalypse would not hear of it the resurrection of lazarus polycarp would have said where have you got that story do you say you are reading it out of a copy of the gospel written by my teacher look here is my copy of st john's gospel i had it from the hand of an ephesian copyist who made it with st john's original gospel before him you see there is no such story here not a trace of it brethren remember what our lord said that false and deluding teachers should come you must not have that false story in your books away with it we can die for the truth and we may have to die for it to-morrow but we cannot die for falsehood who after even one moment's consideration does not feel sure that the supposed interpolation would be impossible in the lifetime of polycarp then lastly could it be made in the lifetime of Irenaeus? remember he was living in a d one seventy five but what would Irenaeus have said when he saw the false story or heard it read one cannot conceive it possible that such an interpolation should be made without Irenaeus having a knowledge of it for he was a man of action and a traveller he went to rome with a message from the christian churches of france before he became bishop of lyons and he entered into correspondence with various persons in different parts of the christian world relative to the doctrines and customs of the church he was no novice to whom the news of an interpolation in the gospel of st john would very likely never reach what would Irenaeus have said resurrection of lazarus what resurrection what lazarus here is my copy of st john's gospel i had it from my martyred teacher the holy polycarp who was himself a disciple of the beloved disciple and often heard the substance of this very gospel from st john's own mouth you will find no such story here we never heard of it before it was not left us as a testimony of either st john or any other apostle away with it you must not have a false story in your books we can die for truth and we may have to die for it to-morrow but we cannot die for a falsehood again i say who after one moment's consideration does not feel sure that the account of the resurrection of lazarus could not have been got into the copies of st john's gospel in the lifetime of Irenaeus, and who does not feel that the connection of the names of Irenaeus and polycarp and st john forms a chain of testimony self-corroborative testimony in itself of the truth of the gospel history there are but three personal links in the chain can you break one of them no you feel it is impossible to do that the links are so inseparably interwelted and connected and what is the full force of this self-corroborative testimony that matthew mark luke and john were the identical persons we understand them to have been that they were real and competent testifiers to the truth of what they relate that they gave up their lives to the spreading of this testimony and that they exposed their lives to danger every day rather than desist from spreading this their testimony there cannot be stronger testimony of any facts than this testimony of theirs if their testimony be not true there is no true testimony in the world of any facts whatever there are no facts but sane men do not come to such a conclusion sane men do not throw away such testimony as this the world would then have not a single page of history to read and would cut itself off from the possibility of learning anything from the written records of the past true history is the most valuable boon bequeathed to us 
by the past generations of men and these four gospels are the most valuable boon of all for thank god they who wrote them were under the especial direction and holy guidance of god himself i can imagine after all that has been said some one present who is still entangled in the net of unbelief will be saying i should have liked your proofs better if they had not been so one-sided if they had not been all given by christians your evidences as you call them are all part and parcel of the same thing as they say in old yorkshire if you could give me some kind of evidence from men who were not christians that the early history as it is called of christianity and the existence of christ himself are facts i should be more disposed to say the evidence is worthy of belief but who could be expected to write a life of christ save a christian who would write the life of a champion of atheism in our day a bishop of the established church could not be expected to do it a methodist minister would not write it the theme could be of no attraction save to a skeptical writer and the life of jesus to form a solid rest for our belief must be the work of those who were with him and saw and heard him yet there is corroborative evidence for the truth of the early christian history and by deduction we may also say for the reality of christ's existence to be drawn from ancient sources which are not christian some of you no doubt will be well acquainted with what pliny and his friend tacticus say about the ancient christians in the year one ten pliny the friend of emperor trajan becomes proconsul of bithynia and pontus provinces near the black sea and at that time abounding with christians the christians were considered to have violated trajan's law against secret societies and many were brought up to the tribunal of pliny for judgment he could discover no crime of which they were guilty but he tells trajan that he learned from their own confessions that they were accustomed to meet together on a certain day of the week sunday that they sang together a hymn in praise of their god christ and they bound one another to abstain from theft adultery falsehood and so on tacticus plainly tells us in the year sixty three the very year it is believed in which peter and paul were martyred at rome nero set rome on fire laid the blame on the christians crucified some of them exposed others to be torn in pieces by dogs after they had been sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and put others to death by having fire set to them after they had been covered with pitch or sewn up in pitched shirts tacticus as one might expect from a heathen philosopher calls christianity an execrable superstition but affirms that it was delivered from christ who was put to death in judea under pontius pilate is this not something like corroborative evidence from an enemy of the truth of the early christian history the satirist juvenal who lived under nero alludes to the burnings of the christians in their pitched shirts and so does his brother satirist marshall suetonius writing of what took place under the emperor claudius in fifty three is also understood to make mention of christ nor let it be forgotten that the emperor julian Heracles, and porphyry who professedly wrote against christianity never for a moment called in question the existence of christ or the fact that he had wrought miracles and celsus who was the contemporary of Irenaeus and tertullian and clement of alexandria in his work against christianity which was answered by origen proves for us that the gospels were then in existence for he quotes them over and over again and shews that christians valued them highly to my own mind the fulfilment of our lord's prophecy respecting the destruction of jerusalem is one of the most striking proofs of the truth of christianity not only josephus but tacticus himself helps us to survey the dire picture in its reality 
which had been so clearly described by Christ thirty-seven years before, the eagles gathered where the carcass was, before the eagled legions under Titus came to surround the doomed city, thirty-seven years before the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet was seen standing in the holy place. Thirty-seven years before, Jerusalem was compassed with armies, and the desolation thereof came, and therewith came such days of affliction, as had not been from the creation of the world. In the year seventy the prophecy was fulfilled to the very letter. Not one stone was left upon another of that gorgeous temple which Herod had so recently beautified. In spite of resistance almost unparalleled in its madness, the Romans burst in upon the nearly famished defenders of the city. Titus issued a commandment that the Jews, as a nation, should cease to exist, that their city should be raised to its foundations, and should never again be called Jerusalem, and its name was not restored till the reign of Constantine, and its condition and the condition of the Jews, even now, are standing proofs of the truth of Christ's prophecy. The site of the temple is devoted to the religion of the persecutors, and yet a crowd of despised, crouching Jews cling to the corridor, near the ruined walls, where they are allowed to live. Once a week they are permitted to enter the place of wailing, where they turn toward a wall of beveled stones, which belong to their ancient city, and kiss the very stones with tears, while they pray for Jerusalem. Oh, who does not long for the conversion and restoration of God's ancient people? Yonder is the Mount Zion of David, and yonder is the other mount whereon stood the courts of the house of the Lord. But there is no temple of Jehovah now. There is no more holy of holies, no more golden candlestick. Yonder is the figure of it in Rome, on the triumphal arch of Titus, for he displayed it among the spoils as he entered Rome. There is no table of showbread, no altar of incense, no ark of the covenant, no veil of the temple, no high priest, no assemblage of priests, and no sacrifice. And Passover time returns, and they keep it yearly, but there is no paschal lamb killed and eaten. The Jews have ceased to sacrifice, have ceased to kill the paschal lamb in every part of the world. Why have they ceased? You ask them, and they are dumbfounded. They do not see that God has caused them to cease, for the real sacrifice has now been offered up, and the real paschal lamb has been slain. From China to the Cape of Good Hope, from England across the Atlantic to the New World, the Hebrew is to be found, with his peculiar and still unaltered physiognomy, for his picture remains on the walls of the tombs of the old Egyptian kings. He belongs to the people, scattered and peeled, dwelling yet on the earth as a warning to rebellious men and living proof of the truth of prophecy. I just now mentioned the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. Who can ponder on Paul's history without feeling that it must be regarded as part of the evidence for the truth of Christianity? Paul's existence and course of life, and the writing of his letters to the Christian churches, are held to be facts by all the German and French schools of skepticism, and that Reverend Robert Taylor that I mentioned to you, who some fifty years ago was a favorite of the London free thinkers, holds by the same facts. But what a puzzling contradiction it seems for men to acknowledge the reality of the life and recorded acts of Paul as facts, and yet to deny the truth of Christianity. What? Paul a real man, and Christ a myth? Paul a real existence? Paul, who wrote so much about Christ so soon after his death and resurrection? Paul a real existing man, and Christ's existence a fable? Paul, who held the clothes of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, while they stoned him to death? Then Stephen was also a real existing man, 
who died praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul, the glorious half-missionary, half-mechanic, who crossed the Mediterranean and the Adriatic, and visited so many shores preaching Christ, yet there never was any Christ to preach? Paul, a real living man, who had seen and conversed with Peter and James and John, then they were all real living men? How came they to say what they did about Christ if he never existed? How came they to speak of his miracles to the people who must have seen Christ's wondrous acts, if ever he performed them? Must they not have expected the people to say, You are impostors! No such miracles were ever performed! Yet no one said this. Even the worst enemies of Christ did not deny his miracles, though they attributed them to satanic agency. What motive could the apostles have for deceiving the world? How came they to say that Christ had done such wondrous deeds of power and goodness, and that they had witnessed them, if he either never existed, or never performed his miracles? They could not be mistaken if they possessed the natural senses of men. They could not be mistaken either about Christ's personal identity after he rose from the dead. It was only on the Friday he was crucified, and the resurrection took place early on Sunday morning, and in the same evening he appeared to them and conversed with them. They could not have forgotten his form and features so soon, the form and features they knew so well. Could their motive for deception have been a selfish and ambitious one? Is it possible that the men who had piety and purity perpetually on their lips were false-hearted schemers? Did they go about lying to teach virtue, to use Paley's masculine thought? Look at the conduct of the apostles after Pentecost, and then, unless we are senseless as stones, we must, without a grain of doubt, be convinced of their honesty. During Christ's lifetime, they never fully understood who their master was, what he came to do, or what they had to do themselves. They were always looking for him to begin his open part as a temporal messiah. They expected him to drive the Romans away, sit on David's throne at Jerusalem, and let them sit on his right hand and his left hand. That was still their dream, even after his resurrection. The last question to him on earth was, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? That is to say, wilt thou drive the Romans away, and sit on David's throne, and let us sit on thy right hand and left? You know what the Lord replied. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his power. He did not encourage their purient curiosity any more than he indulged their earthly spirit. And I take the liberty to say, I think that Christ would have snubbed some of these second-coming people if he had lived in our day. I mean the people who will have their favorite belief for breakfast, dinner, and supper, and who say no minister preaches the gospel unless he proclaims the second coming in every sermon. I do not mean there is to be no second coming of Christ, but I think he himself would check the absurd heat there is in some people's minds on this point if he were living in our day. Manifestly, he did not encourage their wish when the apostles put their last question to him, but told them to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, said he, I am with you to the end of the world. He was with them. That was to be their encouragement and support, not the hot and restless expectations about his second coming. And they were to wait at Jerusalem, not for his second coming, but for the descent of the Holy Spirit, who should guide them and show them what they had to do. A cloud received him from their sight. The Shekinah, one feels persuaded, it must have been, and away they went to Jerusalem, their hearts burning full of love to their dear Lord, and their souls full of faith in him. 
they continued all with one accord in prayer and were together in one place when the holy spirit descended upon them in the form of distributed not cloven tongues of fire and they arose and spake with tongues and the multitude who crowded upon them and heard them expressed great amazement now when the baptism of fire had been received the apostles knew what they had to do they understand it now they know their work is to be a spiritual work and they set about it in thorough earnest and the infant church is at once composed of three thousand souls listen to peter who has become the speaker among the apostles listen to him addressing the wondering crowd after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple listen to him and remember that some of that very crowd might have cried crucify him in pilate's ears but a few weeks before ye denied the holy one and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom god hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses repent therefore that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the lord the priest and the captain of the temple and the sadducees came upon the apostles as they taught and laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day and when the next day they are brought up before the high priest and his friends they testify while the restored lame man stands beside them by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom ye crucified whom god hath raised from the dead even by him doth this man stand before you whole the high priest and his friends cannot deny that a notable miracle has been wrought so they let them go after a little threatening but the work of the unlearned and ignorant men as they were deemed spreads till it shakes jerusalem and the high priest and his friends of the sect of the sadducees are filled with indignation and seize the apostles and put them this time in the common prison but the angel of the lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life and so when the officers found the prison locked and bolted the next morning but the prisoners gone the high authorities are in an alarm did we not straightly command you says the high priest to the apostles when they were once more brought before him that you should not teach in this name and behold ye have filled jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us we ought to obey god rather than men answers peter and the other apostles what a change in peter lately when left to himself for god has to leave us to ourselves when we grow overconfident in order that we may discover our weakness when left to himself i say a poor servant maid frightened him and he denied his master see him now when the holy spirit fills his soul we ought to obey god rather than men he says to the high priest he cares neither for the high priest or low priest nor would he have cared for the whole sanhedrin if they had been present frowning upon him and when they had beaten them and commanded them again not to speak in the name of jesus they let them go but the apostles departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name no more thought about sitting on his right hand and left no zest for worldly honor they know it is to be suffering and persecution to the end but they rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and can shout welcome the shame welcome the suffering welcome the persecution did any apostle ever say before he died it is all a sham christ never rose from the dead it was only a juggle that we contrived that we might get something by it. What? The men who were stoned in the street, hunted from city to city, and some of them put to death? Oh, nay, their saying was of another kind. Do what you will with us. Cast us to the lions and burn us alive. Crucify us as you crucified our master. 
Take our lives in any way you choose, but we still tell you Christ is risen from the dead. We have seen him, and spoken with him, and received his command to preach his name, and we must tell it, and we will tell it, for we feel the power of his resurrection in our own souls. And they did tell it, and God helped them, and the truth of Christ spread over many lands, and it is spreading still, and thank God it has spread to us, and I trust many of us feel its power. Oh, let us all try to spread it still more. Will you, young men, get these evidences into your minds and rehearse them in the ears of your skeptical acquaintances? Will some of you devote yourselves to a new mission and live solely to spread these evidences? I have felt myself alone for these fourteen years while constantly traversing this our loved British ground in every direction. There ought to be at least one hundred men in these realms devoting themselves entirely to this work. Will some of you young men, I ask again, and ask earnestly, prepare yourselves for this championship of the truth of Christ? Get these evidences into your minds, I entreat you, but above all, get Christ formed in your hearts, the hope of glory. That will make you eager and valiant soldiers for your Lord. May God make us all his true soldiers, and enable us to fight the good fight of faith, that at last we may win the crown of life for Christ's sake. End of chapter and end of The Bridge of History Over the Gulf of Time A Popular View of the Historical Evidence for the Truth of Christianity Recording by Brett Downey